and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Claire E. Aubin, a historian of the Holocaust who's a faculty member at Gratz College and will be a lecturer at UC Davis. We'll discuss her work on Holocaust perpetrators, among other things. So welcome to the show, Claire. Hi, thank you for having me on. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. Uh, super timely, I think. And also, your work is just amazing. I read most of your excellent dissertation from Treblinka to Trenton Holocaust perpetrators as immigrants to the United States. And you have a brand new piece that just showed up this morning in Time magazine, touching on the same same subject. So I think a lot of people have probably heard about Nazis ending up in the United States and other countries, but maybe aren't aware of kind of the extent of it. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how common that was and and how that could have happened. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people are kind of familiar with the idea of Nazis in the U.S., um, but they have a very limited understanding of what sort of Nazi came to the U.S., if that makes sense. So a lot of people will um, be aware of things like Operation or Project Paperclip, um, which was uh, a program to bring around 1,600 um, Nazi scientists and engineers to the U.S. to assist in Cold War scientific and military technology, um, as well as like medical advancements, space technology, stuff like that. Um, and so people will be aware of that, or they'll be aware of the idea of Nazis being used as Cold War spies. Um, and in actuality, um, while those were sort of common and popular, um, that is only a, a kind of limited group of who came to the U.S. and how they got to the U.S. in the first place. Um, and it also doesn't always encompass what we consider to be sort of Nazi collaborators and perpetrators, who are people who are who are actively perpetrating war crimes. There were um, some Nazi scientists or engineers who came with Operation Paperclip. The majority, actually, um, didn't knowing well not knowingly but didn't didn't actively participate in war crimes um so of the 148 perpetrators that i look at only three of them were part of operation paperclip so that means that only three of them actively committed and participated in war crimes in terms of um considering how commonplace it was for for perpetrators to immigrate to the us um, it's important to take that statistic of three out of 148 and and realize what a small percentage that actually is. The majority of perpetrators or Nazi collaborators in the sense of, of active perpetrators of, of war crimes, um, the majority of those people uh, came as basically normal undercover immigrants. Um, one historian, Alan Ryan, uh, estimated 10,000 coming to the U.S., we actually don't know how many came um, because in the sort of early post-war period to the early 1950s, um, approximately, approximately 600,000 uh, people immigrated, refugees, displaced people immigrated to the U.S. 
Um, and if only 0.5% of them were perpetrators, which is probably higher than that, but if only less than of 1% were perpetrators, that's 3,000 in the US. So, I mean, we don't actually know how many came. We don't know how common it was. Um, we have this very small select group that we can work from of people who have been actively prosecuted by the US or investigated by the US. Um, but we can sort of extrapolate from that to kind of get an idea of methods of immigration, what their lives in the U.S. looked like and what they were doing while they were here. So other historians have studied the phenomenon of Nazi perpetrators in the U.S. and in other countries, but your work has a somewhat different focus than some of what has come before. I wonder if you could talk about sort of how you reoriented your scholarship to add to what people had done before. Like, what are you doing that's new and different? And what do you think you bring to the table that we didn't already know about this phenomenon? My story, I would say, compared to a lot of other historians is not just about what the U.S. government did or didn't do right or wrong. Um, And it's not just about crimes committed by people, although I obviously discuss those a lot and work on those a lot. Um, It's more a story about immigration and what immigration and identity look like um, after committing atrocity, basically, and how people... um, adjust their identities, adjust their lives, their own personal and individual narratives to accommodate for the commission of war crimes. And then how this sort of search for justice can even exist in the face of all of these sort of lies built on top of lies, and then lives built on top of those lies. It's a, um, I think it's, it's different because I'm less interested in the sensational story of a Nazi next door than I am in the idea that um, people can do horrible, horrific, you know, evil in that sense things and then integrate into a community and and um, sort of wrap that community around themselves when they're accused of the crimes that we know that they that they committed. Um, how they can mobilize uh, geopolitical issues to protect themselves. So it's, it stops being about this sort of broad global conspiracy and becomes about individual agency and about how individuals existing in a system um, coped with the sort of aftermath of that system and then how they interacted with new systems and new contexts afterwards, um, which is not really an angle that's been taken before. I also don't, although I do highlight some perpetrators in some areas, I don't actively follow one or two perpetrators as the primary uh, sort of protagonists of my research, because I don't think that that creates an actual full image of the kind of people who were coming to the U.S. and what they were doing when they were here. One of the things that I found really interesting was that you identified a lot of commonalities in terms of the backgrounds of the people who are able to take this kind of almost like backdoor route to immigration into the United States, despite their past 
as Nazi perpetrators, and also strategies that they seem to have used to camouflage their wartime activities. How did that work? Like, where were those people from? Why was that phenomenon so common to this particular group of perpetrators? And what did they do and why did they do it? So this is another sort of common misconception, or this works against a common misconception, which is that the majority of Nazi collaborators who lived in the U.S. and or still live in the U.S., because we still find them every once in a while, um, the the majority of them were from Soviet annexed countries. They were not German or Austrian. They might be Volksdeutsche, which are, are um, people of German heritage living in Eastern Europe. Um, but they are Eastern Europeans for the most part, like over 90% of the, of the perpetrators that I study were Eastern European. Um, and they were able to use these sort of back doors that you described because Cold War animosity between the U.S. and the Soviet Union um, allowed them to basically uh, exploit these loopholes in American legislation, in American post-war immigration legislation. So they could, for example, say that they had entered um, allied zones during specified time periods um, and not specify that the reason that they had entered them was because they were fleeing concentration camps that they were working at. Um, And these time periods um, would actually work against the people that they had spent, you know, months, years torturing um, because the, the people in the concentration camps could not have entered allied zones by those by that sort of dedicated cutoff point. Um, they also could claim that they were farmers, and that's by far the most common way of um, that Nazi collaborators entered the U.S. was through claiming experience as agricultural workers because the U.S. needed agricultural workers and very explicitly set aside quota preferences for people who could engage in things like agricultural work or lumber management, resource management. Um, And what's so interesting about that, at least to me, is that um, perpetrators could say, I was a farmer during the war, and that would both allow them into the U.S. on a quota preference, but it would also give them basically an alibi for what they were doing during the war. They could say, I was a farmer. By the way, my farm was bombed or raised to the ground. I had, I don't know if anyone's alive and I can't prove it, but you just have to believe me. And the U S said, okay, and let them in basically. Um, and it's a, (laughs) it's a very sort of disturbing, frustrating thing when you look at how strongly American visa quotas preferred um, people from Soviet annex countries because they saw that as helping potential victims of communism to escape communism. Um, and though, and, and some of those people just basically saw that as an opportunity to escape their past and to escape Soviet retribution for, for crimes that they had been committing. Yeah. It's really interesting that in a sense, it seemed like for a lot of those people, if they could camouflage their Nazi past, that emigration to the United States was actually an especially attractive option because of the risk of getting found out and punished if they were to stay in in Europe, which seems like it may have been lower once they got to the United States, ironically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, 
one of the difficulties presented now or in the late post-war period is that because of Cold War relationships, the U.S. didn't have access to the documents that would have proven perpetrators were perpetrators and the Soviets did. And that sort of tense relationship between the two countries kept them from sharing documentation with one another until the 80s um, or even the late 80s in some cases. And um, because of that, perpetrators knew that it was likely that the Soviets would have proof that they had committed war crimes. Um, And they pretty much did have proof for the majority of, of, of perpetrators who ended up immigrating to the U S because most of these perpetrators were serving in some sort of official capacity, like not just committing pogroms, which is obviously also bad, but they were, you know, in death's head battalions as concentration camp guards, working as auxiliary policemen, places where they would have official documentation of their participation. But because the U.S. and Soviet Union weren't sharing uh, documents with one another, they were able to essentially avoid being caught because the U.S. didn't know what it didn't know. They were not aware of of enemies who weren't already on their list of what they called inimical organizations. And the Soviet Union wasn't sharing that with them. So they assumed that anyone who wasn't on the list was fine, essentially. So were there specific things that they tended to do prior to immigration in order to kind of whitewash their backgrounds for the immigration process? And then also, what, if anything, did they have to do after immigration in order to maintain the fiction of innocence or lack of complicity with the Nazi regime? In terms of prior decisions, there's not as much evidence of that or remaining evidence. There are a few things like changing the name that they applied with. That was pretty common. Um, Not like massively common, but there were definitely perpetrators who did that, who would adopt um, certain styles of name. And a lot actually did that after moving to the US, both for assimilation purposes and because, again, it creates a fracture between the identity they held before immigrating and the one that they sort of created afterwards. Um, some abandoned family members. There was a, a quite a famous example in the Fedorenko case where um, he had a family in the Soviet Union, had a wife, had children. Um, when he decided to immigrate, he told immigration officials that his family was all dead, immigrated to the U.S. And then so when when he remarried, he ended up talking to his family back in the Soviet Union in the 60s. So he knew they were still alive. He was aware that they were still alive, whether he found out then or not. Who knows? But he didn't tell anyone. And um, when he was caught and eventually sent back to the Soviet Union where he was executed, his first wife, who he had, you know, uh, remarried while still being married to, um, his first wife was like devastated by it and was and was providing, you know, quotes to newspapers saying, I can't believe my husband is this horrible person who abandoned me and our children, told everyone we were dead, and then started a new life after also committing war crimes. Like there's, 
that while not necessarily common, that was definitely a technique used by some perpetrators was to basically cut off all ties with the life that they had before. And the ones who did were more likely to succeed, I would argue, because there was also an instance of a perpetrator who was caught in the U.S. because he was writing letters to his brother back home in Ukraine who said, hey, I thought my brother was dead. Or basically his his community were like, I thought that your family was decimated. What do you mean you're writing letters to your brother? And then the brother kind of was the source of all of this implosion in his life. And he got caught as a result of that. So, you know, it's that's kind of just the before part is cutting off ties with your life and starting over again. And then after they get to the U.S., they basically do that all over again. They change their names very frequently, which helps them, like I said, helps them to assimilate into American culture. But it also has the effect of, of you know, muddying their paper trail a little bit. And they also become very often become prominent members of their sort of diasporic community in the U.S., so their ethnic community, they tended to move to ethnic communities or communities where there were high concentrations of their ethnic group. And this can serve two purposes. You know, either they were doing it because they just wanted to be around people who spoke the language that they spoke and who had the same culture as them. Um, or it can also be seen as a way of kind of masking themselves and, and hiding within this group. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily an either or like I kind of you know I kind of put it that way but I don't actually think it's an either or. I think it's a both and kind of scenario and that's what I'm arguing in in my work and what is also very new a lot of people have kind of said people that that perpetrators did this for this reason mm-hmm. um and I don't necessarily think that that's true or accurate yeah I wonder if the moving to the ethnic community thing could also be this really interesting like middle ground between fitting in and having a kind of similarity with the people in your community without it being so close that they actually know who you specifically were. Like they kind of know who you are as a type without knowing who you are as a person, which seems like it could kind of walk a tight line but yeah absolutely and sometimes they do actually tell their community that they did this in the hopes that the community will kind of rally around them and often they do um there are some very famous cases of this the demyanya case which is by far the most famous nazi collaborator in the u.s um other than some of the paperclip scientists the demyanya case which is the most famous instance of Nazi collaboration, um, of immigrant Nazi collaboration in the U.S., um, was particularly interesting in this respect because Demyanyuk moved to a heavily Ukrainian area. And then when he was accused, um, the Ukrainian community throughout the U.S., as well as members of emigrate communities um, from other Soviet areas like the Baltics, um, really sort of ferociously defended him in throughout both sets of his trials um, because he, he was denaturalized twice, which is a whole other, a whole other story, but you know, he went through two sets of trials and everything was, was sort of 
uh, framed by members of this emigrant community and this diasporic community, it was framed as um, just evidence of Soviet meddling of of communism infiltrating the U.S. and all part of this sort of um, geopolitical conspiracy that was happening to discredit Ukrainians. So, like these communities that they join get very much weaponized through their through their membership in the community. The more sort of um, entrenched they were, the easier it was for them to turn around and and use them as both sort of a shield and a cudgel against processes of of post-war justice. So how was it that most of the people who have been caught did get caught? And does that phenomenon or sort of observations that you've made about how that actually happened suggest anything about how often people didn't? get caught yeah um so to the first part of that um after the fall of the soviet union there was a a big movement to start sharing and opening up the documents that were held by the soviets the u.s had the u.s department of justice i should say had um an office called the office of special investigations that was made up of lawyers historians it was a pretty sort of remarkable group of people who went to the soviet union um in the late 80s early 90s started interacting with all the documents that they were holding um creating these huge lists bringing them back to the u.s cross-referencing them with suspected nazis finding new nazis from the list doing all all those kinds of things um and the majority of the known collaborators in the U.S. were were from that. There were also a few who were found through sort of uh, sort of freak uh, accidents, like well, accident is maybe maybe not the right word for it, but sort of interesting anomalies where. For example, one wrote a memoir that was sort of he called it kind of auto fiction, you know, where it was like. If I had done this, this is how I would have done it. And he and he, he wrote it in Ukrainian and um, someone said, I think this guy actually did the things that he's talking about in this auto fiction. And it was pretty much just a memoir. And so we caught him that way. Um, and, you know, because then we just poked into it a little bit more and, and, and found out, OK, this is real. Um, one guy, like I mentioned, was found out because he was writing letters to his brother um we somewhat more recently there was a man who was found because we uncovered and when i say we i mean the us not me i wasn't i wasn't doing this but um we uncovered a a german ship a sunken german ship that had miraculously his id card intact in it um so you know we find there's these sort of like weird anomalies where this happens but other than those sort of anomalous situations, there have been a few where someone was recognized, but that mostly happened in in um, displaced persons camps before the war. That was very rare in the U.S. Um, but for the most part, it was not through any fault of their own. It was because they sort of managed to fly under the radar throughout the Cold War. And then when the Cold War ended, that's when they got caught. It wasn't really because they did anything wrong um, in terms of their uh, 
they, in terms of their ability to conceal themselves, like they, they did something wrong, but they, they didn't fail to conceal themselves, if that makes sense. And the ones that, that became too cocky, for example, um, one kind of famous example, Tom Zobzokov was part of a Circassian ethnic community in the US and he was quite high up quite powerful in the community and then when this sort of ethnic infighting started happening where there were disagreements in their in their community um when that happened someone tipped off the US government that he was a that he was a collaborator um because it was well known it was well known in this community that he'd done that and they had kept it to themselves for so long and as soon as he kind of failed to conceal it properly or failed to maintain relationships in his community properly then they just told the u.s and the u.s found him and prosecuted him for it so i mean there there are kind of a lot of 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 these kind of weird anomalies but for the most part it was really just that they had the luck of the draw in terms of who got their documentation after the war and who didn't. Um, but in terms of what that says about how many there might be, that's, I think, the more important part here, which is that we do not know and we can't know. Like, it's not just that uh, it would be difficult to figure out. It's that we cannot possibly know because the whole point of their existence after entering the U.S. is their whole life is colored by this constant concealment, this this constructed identity that they just build off of over and over and over again and we so we absolutely cannot know because we don't have the documentation for it and unless they tell us or someone else tells us there's just not much that we can that we can do so it all has to be about sort of theoretical theoretical examinations of of how many we think entered the u.s and in what capacity i mean it seems like so much of that capacity to conceal their background once they got to the United States was facilitated by the kind of administrative processes that were used to kind of evaluate potential immigrants at the time that they emigrated to the United States. I mean, I wonder, do you think that was just like incompetence, ignorance, indifference, willful blindness, like what was happening that there wasn't a more robust effort to identify and screen out Holocaust perpetrators at the time that we were letting people come to the United States in the first place? I think it's an all of the above kind of situation. I think also a lot of it is that our focus shifted in terms of who we were interested in keeping out of the U.S., on paper, we were interested in keeping Nazis out. Um, anyone who immigrated was required to to sign documents saying that they had not been a Nazi, had not collaborated with enemies of the U.S. Um, they also did go through screening processes. It's not like they just signed something and went. But the issue was that administrators did not have the training necessary to be able to identify instances of collaboration. A lot of times they lacked language skills, for example. Um, Many of the administrators who were working on screening, for example, or the interviewers working on screening would um, have about an eight to 10 hour training session, like the day that they arrived, um, where they were 
taught all of geopolitics and all of the circumstances of the war um, and what was going on in Eastern Europe it, in literally like one to two eight hour sessions. And then they said, great, now find weed out all the Nazis in, in this group. And also while you're doing it, weed out any communists. And so there's just, they were set up to fail, basically. There was just no way that it was going to happen. But the the crisis in Europe after the war was so bad that the goal was just on getting as many people out or to somewhere that they could feasibly, sustainably live um, with the idea that they, part of the bycatch might accidentally be Nazis, essentially. And the U.S. looked for something they called positive proof or positive evidence of of collaboration um but what seems to have happened is if they didn't have positive evidence of collaboration they said well I guess you weren't a collaborator and just moved on um and what was so difficult about that is that in the post-war period the the world and especially the sort of european displaced person milieu the camps the administration all of that was so chaotic and so overburdened with people um that there was just they they couldn't possibly have had evidence of everything for example the majority of the evidence that was gathered was were things that were found in the post-war period so they would be like what do your neighbors think of you and they would ask their displaced persons camp neighbors they would say what do the police think of you and they would ask the police at the DP camp or at in the city they were living in after the war or whatever. So they were finding all this evidence at a time when they already were on their best behavior, essentially when they already had committed a crime and were trying to, trying to avoid being caught because they also had so much, they had so much motivation to avoid being caught because of how swift and violent retribution very frequently was um so it's like there wasn't evidence the evidence they did have was basically pointless for most people and they had a reason to conceal any evidence that could have existed so it it was just kind of it was never going to work basically and that's what most historians over time have found that there was just no chance this was never ever going to work it, so they exploited that fact essentially it's really seemed like one of the, the darkest ironies of that moment was that in some ways it was almost easier for some Nazi perpetrators to emigrate to the United States than for some displaced Jews, even Holocaust survivors. 100%. And I would say not even in some ways, it absolutely was easier for most Holocaust perpetrators to, to emigrate. Well, for most of the known Holocaust perpetrators to emigrate than, than Jews, just by the fact that they were in favored quotas, that they were given explicit preference in immigration law, just by being part of the ethnic groups that the U.S. was trying to focus on in their sort of Soviet savior thing that they were doing. Um Jews just didn't have a chance. For example, this preference for farmers, agricultural workers um, from areas where Jews were very often not permitted to farm or not able to own land, like that automatically would put a significant portion of Jews out of the running for this or hadn't been able to farm for a decade at that point because of how bad it had gotten there. So it's just, it was... There were so many ways, so many different 
methods that could be exploited by perpetrators that were simply not available to Jews um, or to any other groups being persecuted by the Nazis. Um, And so it's very much true that collaborators were able to, like they had more routes of entry than than a Jew would have essentially. Um, and, And they used every single one of those. And sometimes they would claim sort of double quota preference to say, hey, I fit under all of these different criteria, so you should really let me in. And the U.S. would say, great, you're a farming Lithuanian with an experience of, you know, you fought against the Soviets or you were maybe a partisan or something and and not pay attention to what the the full context of that information could possibly mean. Wow. So when these Nazi perpetrators who emigrated to the United States were eventually, often many years later, apprehended and identified, what happened to them? Were they, you know, did they face the music for their war crimes? What was the outcome of their discovery? I would say, aside from the very relatively few who were extradited, um, most people experienced having their naturalization revoked, so being denaturalized and no longer being citizens, um, and probably having their name and memory tarnished. Like that truly is the worst consequence that most known or or alleged perpetrators in the U.S. ever faced. Um, overall, 80 of the 148 that I looked at were denaturalized. Some of them never had citizenship in the first place. Um, some voluntarily relinquished their citizenship to avoid being deported. Um, and 35 of them were not denaturalized and never faced any consequences. Um, so it's a very interesting thing because the argument that has been put forth by the U.S. government and by people who worked in the Office of Special Investigations and other historians is that having a tarnished legacy is the same thing or is enough. That is enough for someone. They are shamed now. But if they're leaving the courthouse, going back to the house that they've lived in with their family for, you know, two generations now, going to their grandchildren's birthday parties, they're dying and being put in the plot in the cemetery a mile from their house. There's no no real sign that they were ever there. It's just if you Google them, they might show up. One press release might show up. Like, so many people, particularly Jews in America, have said this is not the same thing as justice. This is not adequate for what we want. Um, the U.S. also said, well, we did deport some of them or some of them voluntarily departed to whichever country they wanted to go to. Like some one of them um, who was famous for inciting a pogrom, Valerian Trifa or VRL Trifa, um, moved to Portugal, died in Portugal. Honestly, not the worst place in the world to go, in my opinion. The, you know, there are there are just and, and that was because he didn't want to be deported. So he said, I'll voluntarily leave and I'll pick where I'm gonna go. And then he did. And 
we have a lot of cases of that basically, or they'll say, well, I have lots of family in Ukraine or in Lithuania. I'll just go back there. And they do. And they live these very normal average lives. They, for the most part, are never prosecuted when they go anywhere else. Um, There are a few instances of extradition and prosecution abroad, um, but those are, like I said, few and far between. Um, And mostly they just kind of die in obscurity. And to, to me, that means that the U.S. didn't even fulfill its promise of having tarnished their name or their legacy at all, really. Um, so yeah, the answer to what happens is mostly they lose their citizenship and then nothing after that. They go and get tan in Portugal and die. Some of them con- continued collecting social security checks for decades after this, even after leaving the U.S. At, like the U.S. government was still paying for their lives afterwards. Um, so I don't know. It's a pretty it's a pretty unsatisfying end to all of this. And that's one thing I'm really trying to get across and have been trying to get across for a long time is knowledge of someone is not the same thing as as justice in any in any real in any real imagination in anyone's imagination even um you know and there are people who would still say that's too much there are still people who would say taking citizenship away from a 95 year old when that 95 year old oversaw you know mass murder um they'll say taking his citizenship away is is too harsh. That is a very common reaction to these things. Well, on that dispiriting note, Claire, I wonder if we could close the interview with you saying a little something about what you're working on next and where you see this line of research going in the future. Yeah. So right now I'm working on a book based on my dissertation um, where I do a little bit more in-depth looking at individual perpetrators because it's a, it's a little bit hard to do with a dissertation and academic work. This one is going to be a little bit more aimed towards looking at individuals and their experiences in the U.S. and highlighting ones that are not as widely known. And also I've been working a lot more recently on American anti-Semitism more generally, because I think that that is inextricably linked with what I'm talking about here and how they were able to immigrate in the first place. I've been looking more at how the Holocaust and anti-Semitism are instrumentalized in American political narratives. So like when COVID vaccines came out, how the far right was using Holocaust analogies to describe vaccination, and then how groups like anti-abortion protesters in the U.S. and activists on in the sort of pro-life area have um, mobilized Holocaust perpetration narratives to, to defend their political stance. Um, because I don't think that this understanding of instrumentalization in Holocaust perpetration is um, wide enough in the U.S. because it is so constantly used to to defend um, political standpoints that are absolutely incongruous with the actual context of the Holocaust. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to move more, not move away from Holocaust perpetration and studies because I think it's important and that will always be a, a piece of what I do, but I'm trying to move a little bit more towards 
finding a way to contextualize perpetration and Holocaust and understanding of those two things um, within contemporary American political narratives, because it shows up all the time and people are not talking about it enough. Excellent. Well, I hope when your book is ready for publication, you can come back on the show and we can we can talk about it uh, as well, because this is a wonderful and really enlightening conversation. Thanks so much, Claire. Thanks again.
Show!